0: So the longer I read the Bible, I find myself more and more drawn to the people in these stories uh, that are healed by Jesus. Um, one of the things that Jesus was known for was his healings, uh, these miraculous healings of people, both physical, mental, but also spiritual as well. And they're extraordinary stories in that Jesus does these things for people is always pretty remarkable. You see, in the ancient world, there was medicine, magic, and miracle. And miracles were free. And the stories themselves should bring up a sense of compassion in us. When we read them, we ought to pay attention to the person who's receiving the healing. Back in seminary school, to quote Jim Morrison... We dissected these stories, like verifying and weighing probabilities. uh, Are they true? All that sort of stuff. But it was always an empty task for me. The stories are meant to show us something about Jesus and his care for people and to speak to us in a way that we might become more and more compassionate towards those who suffer, right? And the story tells us that this man had been blind Since birth, he was born that way. This has been his whole life, and he was left to do what only someone in that situation in that time could do, which was to beg, steal, or borrow. This is what his life looked like. Perhaps his parents were not wealthy. Maybe they were poor. But either way, he's born into this really uphill life. And that's the first thing we should notice in the story, this sense of inherited trouble, it reminds me of like um, I was getting gas at a gas station in which is where you get gas um, <laughs> off of Buford Highway a couple of weeks ago, and you know this little seven eight year old boy comes up and tries to sell me water, you know for a dollar, and he's licking the bottle like. And it's difficult, because in the distance I can see his mom and dad pushing him to make money. It's difficult. And when we get here, even at the church, when we get calls for assistance, which we get all the time, and people fill out benevolence forms for us, every single time there's this glaring absence of support and network for these people. It's one of the things that we talk with them through. You know, Do you have any family? Do you have any people around you? The answer is almost always no. These people have nowhere to go and no one to turn to. It's, it's sad, it should build a sense of compassion. And if there's compassion involved, then it becomes difficult because a compassionate person feels the pain. There's somewhat of a gut level discomfort when we see these things, and I think we've all known people. It may even be you who were born into a world already ensconced by trouble, born into a hard situation, um, or as Albert King once saying, "Born under a bad sign," and it seems like their whole life is uphill. Some people are born into poverty. Some people are born into a home of just revolving relationships and instability. Some people are born into a neighborhood with zero hope. Some people are born into a culture of negativity and criticism. You know, maybe that's what you grew up in. When you think of your parents or your siblings, it's like, gosh, it was all negative Maybe that's why you're in therapy. It's a, it's a common track for so many people. Maybe born into uh, a world where there's a diagnosable depression and anxiety in your life, or the tendency to panic. Born with an uncontrollable sense of fear, always afraid. Born with a disease. It's terrible. Or born into a family... Have failed, right? In her article for The Mockingbird uh, titled, Everyone Fails the Parent Test, Katie Padilla writes, the latest reality competition show, The Parent Test, is yet one more venue for parents to both render judgment and experience shame for the role we're all trying to do without clear guidance. By gamifying the many anxiety-producing choices and actions parents make on a regular basis, this show proves that parenting is a job we all strive to succeed at while failing miserable more often than not. Parents, amen? Putting each family's parent-child interactions on display for all to see and comment on only brings to life the very fear in the back of our parenting minds that someone is watching and judging our parenting decisions. Life is hard, and sometimes we make it harder for people. Now, Jesus' own disciples get the ball of shame rolling, saying to Jesus, hey, rabbi, uh, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Seems weird, doesn't it? You see, in the ancient world, a person's physical and social well-being was often tied to his morality standing among the gods. If he's living right, then things will go well. If he's just doing all the right things, then things will fall into place. But if he's not, then things will be difficult. So their question is rooted in this cultural, religious experience and motif, but also in a faulty understanding of who God is. It's easy to do for each of us. The distance between seeing someone's troubles and making quick decisions on why they're in such trouble, that distance is not very far. We are quite fast on the assessment of other people's issues. This is one of the things that uh, is talked about in the book. I recommend it, Celebrities for Jesus. It's a great book. Uh, But the whole premise of the book is based on The idea of celebrity or fame, and she defines this quite well, is influence without proximity. It's toxic. It's dangerous. They don't know you. And when we get our advice from people who are not in close proximity with us, they fail to really see the intricacies of our troubles, right? And we need people around us who know those things, who put up with us in spite of So Jesus responds to his disciples, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says to them, I'm going to need y'all to stop. Was this guy a sinner? Is that why he's blind? I'm going to need y'all not to posit that idea. And so he heals the man. And in the strangest of ways, did you catch that as we're reading it? He spits in the mud and he wipes it on the guy's face. It's pretty gross. It's nothing I want to go through, you know? Now, here's the thing. Jesus was known for healing people both through just word, you're healed, but also through touch. Sometimes he would just say the words and someone's life would be changed. And other times he would touch the person to bring healing. Now, there are religious and theological reasons for those things but they're not all that interesting. But there is also this compassionate reason for this, that he would touch someone to share in the humanity of a person who maybe has over time been made to feel inhumane, to share in that very real createdness of the person. Even someone who had lived... A life of rejection. Jesus would touch. Like the leper that Jesus heals by touching. And in case you don't know, you don't touch a leper. I always love that story in the Gospels. Jesus touches, it says, Jesus touches the leper. The disciples had to have backed up. Jesus has leprosy. Jesus has leprosy. Jesus has leprosy. Because that's literally what would happen. It's quite interesting. But this... Leper and so many have been untouched for so long that sometimes Jesus would just touch them. Now there's a lot of talk and articles right now about the ability of AI to bring this sort of touch to a person's life and how quickly it went from, hey, you can write your college essays with this thing, to providing comfort For those who are alone, the articles are innumerable. And whatever the outcome of that will be, it underscores the eternal truth that we find in Genesis 2 when God says, It is not good for people to be what? Alone. It's tough. We need community. And I could tell you were listening as I was reading the text because you were laughing. But this man's troubles are not over. He can see, but now he is being dragged into the middle of a theological debate on what you're allowed to do on the Sabbath day of rest. And healing for some is prohibited as a, as a type of work that you can do on this day of rest. Now, before we write these people off as religious zealots, it's good to remember that we too have all sorts of cultural, uh, moral purity codes that we ask people to live by. And if they falter, then it could cost them a lot. And so it's not new. It's just a different venue. And I know that you picked up on that because this poor guy who just, I can see, this is fantastic. And now he's in some seminary debate. And I love that they ask him, like, who was this guy? And he's like, I have no idea. I couldn't see him. (laughs) Because I don't know if you caught that. Like, Jesus healed him and like fled the scene. This guy has no clue. You know, he's just like, I, I don't know, some guy. I don't care really. I can see. That's what matters the most, right? But what ends up happening to this man over time, and you heard this as well, that he is expelled from his synagogue. He's kicked out for nothing more than being healed and expressing a faith in the one who healed him and it's wild. And it's here that the story for us finds some meaning. If you keep reading on into chapter 10, it's a continuation. Jesus keeps talking. I know the very last verse was a very Bob Dylan, like I don't know what he just said. But if you keep reading, it's a continuation of the whole scene. And Jesus begins to teach, and he breaks down the meaning Of this experience for those who are listening, and he does so by comparing good shepherds and bad shepherds. Now, the shepherd was the term uh, for Israel and her leadership in the world. They were called to be a people who cared, who enacted justice and mercy and humility on the earth. And Jesus said that bad shepherds, I mean, this is not hard to decipher. He said that bad shepherds don't really care about the sheep, you know. But Jesus goes on to say that the good ones, they lay their life down for the sheep. It's a commentary on care and compassion. So the follow-up to this story is an invitation into this caring and compassionate state. But the story is also a message of hope for the ejected. Now, when John's gospel was written, hang with me, this will be boring. When the gospel writers wrote their gospels, they picked stories that applied to their time. Jesus did a lot of stuff. At the end of John's gospel, it says, there's too many stories. I don't even have them all in here. That's my paraphrase. And so they picked stories to tell and to retell based on the times they were living in. And when John's gospel was written, there was already a tearing apart between the synagogue and those who follow Jesus. For a while, everybody just kept going to synagogue and it was awkward. And by the time of John's writing, this is starting to become an issue. And so people being ejected from the synagogue was a very real issue. And so he chooses this story to retell for us as a way of Uh, showing the Lord's compassion over those who have been cast out. This was an issue. People being ejected from their faith communities over their pursuit and their faith and trust in Jesus. Church denominations are a living example of ejection. Why are there so many denominations? Well, the dirty truth is people don't agree. It doesn't mean that denominations are not beautiful expressions of Christianity. They are. But their origin stories are always disagreement and strife and who's allowed in and who's not. In our tradition, which is not perfect, in fact, imperfection may be our number one trait, but we have as our origin story this story of an open communion table as a means of access and fellowship that all people are invited to the table. It cuts through all the jargon of the things that may divide us. And so when we take communion each week, you need to know that this is why we're here. It reminds us that You may be living an ejected life, a rejected life. Maybe the last church threw you out. It's been interesting. We've had an influx of Methodists over the last six months, but that's because the Methodist church is severing. And it's been uh, pretty wild. But to be a place where all people are welcome and can find some kind of rest from all these divisions, that's the goal. That's the goal of the table when we serve one another. Uh, My friend Ryan Snyder, who's here, uh, he's preached before. He's preaching again in April. So don't, uh, yeah. Hey, don't cheer too loud. I mean, I (laughs) try. Uh, He wrote this, I don't know how long ago, maybe a month or so ago, but or longer, but I just want to read you his words, relatively newer family to our church. He wrote, the best part of Atlanta Christian Church is that a bunch of, and I love this phrase, denominational refugees have found sanctuary in a place where we no longer follow Apollos or Paul. Instead, we found sanctuary in the house of Christ, free from our fortress theologians that separate us from one another. Each week we come to the table disagreeing about what we're actually doing at the table in the first place. But we receive Christ all the same, dissolving into one body. So whatever the reasons are that you feel rejected, ejected, you are always welcome here. As Joel Mooneyhan used to say, who used to be a pastor here, Every time he would do communion intro, he would say, this is not our table, this is the Lord's table. So you are invited, you're always invited. Amen.